families and universities have this in common, instruction, development. But they also are very different. They're very different. Boot camp has the nickname, is, is the nickname for military training. <laughs> and it prepares new recruits for all elements of military service, physical, mental, and emotional. When I think of boot camp, I think of this. I think of a drill sergeant yelling in the face of a private, right? This is actually from Full Metal Jacket, which I actually haven't seen the movie, but I hear that this is what the drill sergeant looks like there. Um, the instruction is very practical, but it's also very harsh and disciplined. It's kind of in your face, right? That's a picture of it. Okay, so that's boot camp. Universities provide instruction and training, but they're also much different than the military, right? You see a sergeant there yelling in anybody's face? The university, there's a focus on intellectual instruction. When you go to a university, you need to study and read. You, you go to class so you can demonstrate your understanding and knowledge on tests, papers, projects. The interaction is very cerebral, but not very personal or hands-on. You can see it's a classroom kind of thing for the most part. There's, there's projects and so forth. Um, but it's not very personal. Families, on the other hand, the instruction that goes on family in families is very personal and practical. It's best described by, I think, by the term nurture, which means to care for, to encourage someone in their growth and development. So nurture is what happens in families. The but the change that happens in families is the most radical of the three. It's the most radical of the three. The development from infancy through childhood to an adult goes from utter dependency in almost a blank slate, not quite, but almost a blank slate, to the deepest formation of character, identity, and behavior. You know that the experience a person has in a family influences their whole life, sometimes for great good and sometimes for great difficulty. It's a very deep, radical influence in people's lives. Parenting also involves almost unconditional commitment to the care and upbringing of the child. Right, Danielle? Almost unconditional commitment to the care and upbringing of that child. And while sometimes it can be harsh, it's meant to be filled with affection, care, and gentleness. And it's usually very personal, and it's usually very practical. Right, all moms? It's very practical, right? <laughs> well, which of these three, boot camp, family, or universities, best describes Christian discipleship? Which of these three, boot camp, university, or families, best describes Christian discipleship or growth? It's actually family. It's the nurturing experience of a family that best describes Christian discipleship and growth. And this is one of the themes we see in Paul's letter as, letters as we read through Paul's letters. Some of you know that we started this series in January. 
We actually started this series in January, and we're at the very end. Next week will be the last of the Great Commission series. We started by going through Acts, uh, all the 28 chapters of Acts, one week at a time, so that took us 28 weeks. And then we went to the letters that Paul wrote to those locations, and we put them into historical context by reading them in the order that he wrote them. And so one of the last two letters that he, last three letters he wrote was 1 Timothy, Titus, and then 2 Timothy when he was facing the death penalty. So, but, but this particular theme of nurture, of a family-related uh, Christian discipleship is also part of what we see in this letter to Titus. The letter describes in great detail what the local church and culture looked like before Christian discipleship. You actually see that in the letter. And what it should look like after, both in the church and in society. But the surprising thing for me about the letter is how the training is described. That was the surprising thing as I studied this letter. And I memorized this letter 10 years ago. So I've been thinking about this letter for a long time. But it surprised me in my study. The training involved is more like family nurture. And sandwiched right in the middle of the letter, which is what Holly just read, sandwiched right in the middle of the letter, between the detailed description of the condition of the church and society before and that afterward, is this, these verses that, that Holly just read. It is the idea, it is the idea that it is the grace of God that trains us. It is the grace of God that trains us to say no to ungodliness. Not what you would expect. Not the harshness of a drill sergeant or the cerebral engagement of an impersonal professor. It is the grace of God that trains us. The grace of God demonstrated in the gospel of Jesus that trains us in a family-oriented, nurturing way. Well, what I want to do today, and I'm going to be very quick about this, is I want to give some context for the letter, who it's from, when it was written, who it was to, well, you know, it was written to Titus. And we'll see where Titus is when, this, when he received this letter and what it was like there in this, this place where he is when he receives the letter and what Paul was asking him to do. So that's, I'm going to quickly go through that context. Um, my hope is that you will see that the radical difference that Christian discipleship and Christian leadership is meant to have in people's lives. And most of all, most of all, how it happens. How it happens. That's the gospel, that it's the gospel that trains us, the gospel of grace that trains us, which is the title of this sermon. So let's pray first. Lord God, pray that you would go before us today as we look into this letter to Titus. Lord, help us to see what you want us to see. Pray that your spirit would be among us, that you would uh, be here. Help us to understand the word of God, your word. Uh, and, and Lord, help us to do more than just understand it and think about it and hear it. Help us to apply it. Help us to learn by it and to do what it says. Thanks, God, for this time you've given us today. 
In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Okay, okay, so the letter was written by Paul to Titus. Many think that Paul wrote this letter and the letter to Timothy after being released from his first imprisonment in Rome. And so remember he wrote Philippians, Colossians, Ephesians, and Philemon when he was in his first imprisonment in Rome. Then he was released, and many think that he wrote 1 Timothy and Titus about the same time. And so Jonah preached on 1 Timothy last week. And so um, he left Timothy in Ephesus. You can see Ephesus right there in modern-day Turkey. He left Timothy in Ephesus, and he wrote him the letter we called 1 Timothy. And he left Titus in Crete, that little island right there by the big two. He, he, he left Titus in Crete, and he wrote him a letter. So Paul's letter to Titus was written in parallel with 1 Timothy in timing and substance. If you've ever wondered why they're very similar, it's because they were written basically in parallel in timing and substance. So the two, so they were written to two different people, Titus and Timothy, ministering in two entirely different cultural contexts, Ephesus and Crete. And those aren't just fun facts to know. They actually influence how we read the letter. And so once you know that, things begin to make a little more sense, okay? Well, let's just give a quick snapshot of Ephesus. I know you've heard this before, but in Paul's day, Ephesus, which is the cultural context of 1 Timothy, Ephesus was the capital city of the Roman province of Asia. Ephesus was a significant center of trade. Major roads connecting Ephesus to the other significant cities in Asia Minor and to all throughout the Roman roads were built right through Ephesus. It's a major uh, thoroughfare. Ephesus was also known for its amphitheater, for its, for its Colosseum, the largest in the world, designed to build, to, sorry, designed to hold 50,000 spectators. 50,000 spectators. Yeah, you could do a Super Bowl there, for sure. Um, <laughs> Ephesus was also the location of the great temple Artemis, or Diana. This temple is one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. It is four times bigger than the Parthenon. And I've been, I went to the Parthenon when I was in, in high school. It's four times bigger than that. According to N.T. Wright, the temple of Artemis was massive. And Artemis, her cult, was run entirely by female officials. Entirely. So that gives you a picture of Ephesus that Paul wrote 1 Timothy to. Okay? So put that in the back of your mind. This might explain why Paul wrote what he did about women in leadership in 1 Timothy. It might explain that. You can read that. In any case, we'll say that Ephesus was a culturally progressive city of the day. That's Ephesus. That's 1 Timothy, okay? That's enough of that. Crete, on the other hand, Crete, on the other hand, the cultural context of Titus was entirely different. 
According to the Bible Project, this, I, I love, if you ever get a chance to listen to the Bible Project on these letters, it's wonderful. Here's what they say on the Bible Project. Cretan culture was notorious in the ancient world. One of the Greek words for being a liar, one of the Greek words is kretizo, or to be Cretan. <laughs> it's actually a, a Greek word, which means to lie. These people were infamous for treachery and greed. Most of the men on the, on the island had served as mercenaries, mercenary soldiers to the highest bidder. Didn't care which, what the cause was. Whoever could pay the most, we'd fight for them. The island cities were known as being unsafe, plagued by violence and sexual corruption. However, the island uh, of Crete had many strategic harbors, and you see that in Acts 27. Remember when we were looking at Acts 27 and we were following the journey of Paul uh, from Caesarea to Rome by sea? Before he got into the hurricane, they, were, they stopped at a couple different places, and they were heading for Phoenix, a place called Phoenix on the island of Crete when the hurricane took them off. So those, island, those ports were important for sea-bearing uh, sea folks. Crete was the perfect place to start a network of churches, in Paul's view. We don't know the details, but somehow these churches came under the influence of corrupt Cretan leaders. Again, this is the Bible Project saying this. They said they were Christians, but they were ruining the churches. So Paul provided this letter to Timothy with instructions. With instructions. So that's the backdrop of the letter. So Paul opened his letter to, to Titus with a greeting. Now, this greeting is a little unusual in the letters from Paul. The greeting contained an unusually long description of Paul's personal mission and calling from God. He said that he was a servant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ. Okay, that's not that different. But he also said that his mission was for the sake of the faith of God's elect to further that faith in their knowledge of the truth, the truth which accords with godliness. So his job was to further the faith of God's elect in their knowledge of the truth that accords with godliness. So it's no surprise that to find much of Paul's letter addresses how to further the faith and to grow in godliness, honesty, and integrity, right? So that's what he does. Then Paul reminded Titus why he left him there. Here's why I left you in Crete. He says right there in the first few verses. Namely, to put in order what remained or to fix what was defective. And to appoint, not elect, but to appoint elders in every town as I directed you. That's his job. Go from town to town where there's churches, fix what's defective, put things in order, and appoint elders. And so he gave him details on what an elder should look, at, look like. So that was the next thing he said. Here's what elders should look like. And then he talked about in, in chapter 2 how people should behave to be in order. Do you know that the primary sources in the Bible for the qualification of church leadership, elders and deacons, you know where those are? They're found in these two letters, 1 Timothy and Titus. 
And now you know why. They were written in parallel at the same time. At this stage in Paul's life and ministry, he was acutely aware of the importance of godly, good godly leadership in the church and the damage that can be done without it. So that's why he writes these two letters like this, one to Timothy in Ephesus and the other Titus in Crete. Toward the end of the first chapter, he tells Titus to correct the leaders that are upsetting the whole families by, by those who are contradicting healthy doctrine and healthy theology, which is what uh, Jonah preached on last week. He says how to, how to correct them. You know how he says to do it? He says rebuke them sharply. And what he's talking about there are the errant leaders, not the people at, at large. The errant leaders need to be corrected so that they don't influence and disrupt all these families that are attending these churches. Then in chapter 2, Paul gave Titus a detailed description of how believers at large should behave. So he gives this detailed description. So you have the description before the uh, uh, Christian discipleship, and then you have a description after Christian discipleship. And so what he's doing in chapter 2 is he's given Titus a detailed description of how the believers at large should behave. And he splits them up into five different categories. You can see that in chapter 2, five different categories. Older men, he doesn't say old men, but he says older men. Older women, he <laughs> doesn't say old women, but you know what I'm saying. He does say young women and young men and bondservants. So those five categories he addresses in the first part of chapter 2. And since Titus fell into the category of young men, um, relatively speaking, <laughs> he told him not only to teach these things, but to model them. And so he says, show yourself a model. This little section, and this was something new that I saw this time as I studied it again, this little section, verses, chapter 2, verses 1 through 9, has three little significant phrases in it that explain why these behaviors are important. And this is what I saw for the first time this time. At least one of the reasons that they're important is because they affect how the surrounding culture receives the word of God. It says that three times. The reason these behaviors are important is because they affect how the surrounding culture receives the word of God. I'm going to go through them. These, these phrases follow the idea in verse, chapter 2, verse 1, uh, that, that Titus needs to teach what befits healthy doctrine. These things that you're teaching aren't necessarily the healthy doctrine itself, but they're the things that go along with healthy doctrine. And so here they are. The first one is in chapter 2, verse 5. And it says, it explains the effect of young women's behavior. So verse 5, it says, so that the word of God may not be reviled. Okay, by who? By the culture. So that the word of God would not be reviled. Second one is in verse 8, chapter 2, verse 8. And it explains the effect of young men's behavior. Namely, the behavior being modeled by Titus through his teaching and his good works. 
it says, so that an opponent may be put to shame, having nothing evil to say of us. That's the second one. It's about how some people would say, would criticize and speak evil of us if the young men didn't behave this way. The third one is in verse 10 of chapter 2 and explains the effect of a bondservant or a worker in their behavior. And it says, so that in everything they may adorn the doctrine of God our Savior. Adorn. What does adorn mean? It means to make it beautiful, make it attractive. So that in every, a bondservant should act this way, so that in everything they may adorn the doctrine of God our Savior. You know, it, it isn't surprising, I'm going to get a little controversial here, it isn't surprising to us to say that our behavior affects how people view what we believe. It does, we know that. Our behavior affects how people view what we believe. These are biblical principles on how our beliefs and behaviors as Christians relate to our cultural context. It's actually in the Bible that that's a concern that we should have. It's not unbiblical to look at how the world is relating to the gospel based on our behavior and how we treat each other, because that's what he's talking about. He's not only giving you the criteria of how people should behave, he's telling you how it relates to the culture and why it's important. So for instance, <laughs> for instance, the expectations on the roles of women in verses 3 and 5 were given so that the word of God might not be reviled. Paul is clearly relating these behaviors to address a cultural issue in the reception by the culture of the word of God. So I ask you, how are our expectations on the behaviors of women in leadership in particular affecting the way our culture views the Word of God today? Let me ask that again. I'm not going to preach on this. This is just, it happened to come up in the subject. And so I'm just, I'm just throwing it out there for you. How are our expectations on the behavior of women in leadership in particular affecting the way our culture views the Word of God today? Does it cause them to respect or revile the Word of God? I'm just throwing it out there. These three stated reasons in verse 5, 8, and 10 are also inspired by God. They are God-breathed, just like everything else in Scripture. They are God-breathed, and they cannot be disconnected from the behaviors listed in the chapter. Okay? You can't just take this part and not that part. They're both there. So let's do that. Let's be open to the Word of God on these issues. Let's be open. And that's all I'm going to say on that issue in this sermon, but it's something we need to think about, okay? So these things bring me to the key verse in, the, in my sermon today, and that's verses 11 and 12 of chapter 2. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us, training us to renounce... Can you put that up there? Oh, thank you. Training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions, and to live, excuse me, live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in this present age. Excuse me. The grace of God. 
trains us to renounce ungodliness and to say no to ungodliness, is what it says in, in uh, the NIV, uh, New International Version. To say no to ungodliness. It's the grace of God that trains us to say no to ungodliness. Then the verse goes on to describe the gospel of Jesus, who gave himself up for us to redeem us um, from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people of his own who are zealous for good deeds. We are redeemed through Jesus, you know this, we are redeemed through his death on the cross for our sake to pay for and save us from our own faults and failures, to purify us for his very own to do good works. We are justified by grace. We didn't deserve it. We are justified by grace. And we've become heirs in the hope of eternal life. That is the gospel of Jesus. This is the gospel of grace that trains us to say no to ungodliness. Okay, I'm going to explain a little bit more of what I'm saying. The Greek word for training in verse 12, is not what I expected when I looked it up. Because, you know, when you've been studying the Scriptures for a while, um, even if you don't know Greek, you learn a few things, and you're like, oh, I know what that verse, I know that, that Greek word. So <laughs> I went and checked and looked it up. It's not what I expected. What I expected was this one. Um, and it's, it's a, 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 a word, gumnazo, I'm, I'm terrible at pronouncing, but I'll just say it that and it's a, it's, a, it's a word that's used in a parallel passage in 1 Timothy 4.7. Remember, 1 Timothy is parallel. 1 Timothy 4.7 says this, train yourself, and it uses that word, for godliness. Train yourself for godliness. So I, I fully expected the verse in Titus to be that word. It wasn't. It's a, it's a word that's related, like it says, to gym or gymnastics training. But the Greek word used in Titus 2.12 is this one. I'll try it. Okay, I'll try it. Pahidioo. All right. This word is related to the modern day words pediatrician or pedagogy. And it describes the training of children, the raising of children. And while the training of children does involve some chastisement, so that's one of the meanings of the word. I think the best word to describe the training of children is nurture, like I mentioned. And if you noticed, I don't know if you look at this particular piece, but when Erin sent out the constant contact, she had those two words in the subject line. As you went down through your subject, you're like, what in the world is that? The reason she put it there is because it was a surprise to me that these two words were different in this particular key verse in the sermon. The way the grace of God trains us for godliness is like the way a parent nurtures a child in development. I'll say that again. The way the grace of God trains us for godliness is like the way a parent nurtures a child in their development. The word is used to describe godly discipline and I'm sorry, that word right there, pahidioo, uh, is used in Hebrews 12 when it says, we have all had earthly fathers who disciplined us, that word, and we respected them. 
And it's, it reminds me of how Paul related to the Thessalonians. Five years earlier, he had just left Thessalonica, and he's on his way he's down in Corinth, or maybe in Athens, and he writes a letter five years earlier to the Thessalonians. And this is what he said. We were gentle among you, like a nurse taking care of her children. This is Paul talking. We were gentle among you, like a nurse taking care of its children, her children. So being affectionately desirous of you, this is the preacher Paul, so being affectionately desirous of you, we were ready to share with you not only the gospel of God, but our own selves, because you'd become very dear to us. And then a, couple, a little bit later he says, you know how like a father with his children, we exhorted each of you and encouraged you and charged you to lead a life worthy of God. Parenting. Parenting is the image of Christian discipleship. This is how the gospel of grace trains us. This is how the gospel of grace trains us to say no to ungodliness. It's not what you think. It's not what I think. It's not the rules and the regulations. It's not the harsh legalism. But like in Colossians 2, it says it's not the rules. Do not handle, do not taste, do not touch. This is in Colossians 2, he writes this. These have the appearance of wisdom in providing self-made religion and asceticism and severity of the body, but they are of no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. No. It is the gospel of grace that trains us to say no to ungodliness. This is not a small point. It's the gospel of grace that trains us to say no to ungodliness. We are trained to become disciples of Jesus by the gospel of Jesus, the gospel of grace. The gospel of grace is central to discipleship and disciple-making. Just was Halloween, let me tell you, a, let me say a haunting statement. If we don't make disciples with the gospel in mind, we won't make disciples of Jesus, we will make Pharisees. It's been done before. You may have seen it. If we don't make disciples according to the gospel of Jesus, with the gospel of grace in mind, we won't make disciples of Jesus, we'll make Pharisees. That's what will turn out. Don't be disciplined. But they won't have the gospel of grace behind them. It's the gospel that we advance. We do that through disciple-making. Okay. Sorry, get passionate on that one. So it is the gospel of grace, God's grace, that trains us to say no to ungodliness. We need to win hearts to God and to godliness. This is not done with a hard, the hard chastisement of a, of a drill sergeant or the strict application of rules, but rather through the grace of God. The grace of God that nurtures us like a child or with a, apparently with a child. You know, the founder of Chop Point School, a guy named Peter Willard, years ago, um, I was going to speak at the first meeting of the teachers. This was several years ago. The first meeting of the teachers that were coming in. And he said, Mike, could you come and teach and share the, with the teachers um, what we can do to help our kids love Jesus more? 
And if you know Peter Willard, that's just a total Peter Willard question. Help us, to te- tell us what we can do to help our children love Jesus more. Like, what in the world am I going to say? <laughs> what am I going to say to the teachers? Well, I went to the scriptures and I found this miracle, this, well, not this miracle, this story that, that happened to Jesus when this woman comes in and she's crying at his feet and she's washing her, his feet with her tears and her hair, drying it. And he turns, Jesus turns to the woman and says, your sins have been forgiven. And the Pharisee who is sitting there is like, what in the world? <laughs> How can he do this? Who is this guy? And Jesus knew what he was thinking somehow. And he looks at him and says, who will love more? One who's been forgiven much or one who's been forgiven little? Who will love more? And the Pharisee wasn't an idiot. He said, well, the one who's been forgiven more. And he said, there you go. And you can read the rest of the story. I turned to the teachers and I said, you know, my kids go to the school and I know you need to have rules. I want you to have rules. Of course, I want you to have rules. But it's not the rules that will cause them to love Jesus more. It's how you react when they break the rules that will cause them to love Jesus more. And I've had 11 children and there's one thing I've learned is I need to raise my children with the gospel in mind. And in the same way, I need to make disciples with the gospel in mind. It's what changes the world. It's what causes people to say no to ungodliness. It's the gospel of grace that trains us. Let's be strong in the grace of God, receiving it and giving it. As we glorify God, love others, and make disciples of Jesus Christ which is the mission of this church. Amen? Amen. Okay. <laughs> Let's pray. Wow. Oops, I think I've made a baby cry. I'm sorry. <laughs> Let's pray. Lord God, help us to be strong in the grace of God as we make disciples of Christ. I hope I wasn't too harsh right then. Help us to be strong in the grace of God. We are so thankful for your grace, O oh Lord your unmerited favor and blessing. Thank you, thank you, thank you. Help us to remember that it is your grace that trains us to say no to ungodliness. Train us, O Lord. May we experience the grace, the gospel of your grace today and every day.